Welcome to the Heretex Podcast. You can get us at heretex.io or send us email at feedback at heretex.io. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the show and whether perhaps you'd like to join us for a chat yourself. It's time to talk about change. Hello, everyone out there to the Heretics podcast with Justin and Mark. I am Mark. Uh, Justin's here, right? Hello from London. London is calling. So uh, we, uh, we never seem to be actually in the same geographic area or even time zone. I'm dialing in today from New Jersey, and we have uh, our next guest. We're really excited to have Christine Yen, CEO and co-founder of Honeycomb a really interesting technology company, a startup based in San Francisco, right, Christine? Yep, based in San Francisco, although it seems like every day we're more and more distributed. We, we are. Well, even, not, even prior to shelter in place. <laughs> even prior to shelter in place. Uh, well, we're certainly very well informed on the uh, being remote with this podcast. I've been around the globe. I think I've done a few of these episodes from Hong Kong and Singapore, and Justin is normally in Toronto. Please introduce yourself, Christine. We're really glad to have you on. Maybe just share a little bit about kind of your background, like what got you into technology and how you got from where you started to where you are now as a founder of a tech company. Sure. I really got into technology. I grew up in the the Bay Area. And so, you know, I've been around technology my whole life. And as a kid, I was just really, it was really clear to me um, and impressive to me how much impact you could have on people in a community and, and um, you know, real life with just some lines of text in your text editor. And that has, you know, again, only become more true. I spent many years as a software engineer. For me, the fun part was always the building and, and the creating and the coming to, into being, um, not so much the scaling. But before Honeycomb, I worked at a company called Parse, where I met my co-founder, and she was, you know, basically the the polar opposite of me. Um, she loved the scaling. She was like, "Oh, I can never be a software engineer. That's too boring. You do the same thing every day." And I always, I always hear that part with like my mouth on the floor because I'm like, "You do the same thing every day." <laughs> but <laughs> growing up in this time, being a software engineer in this time, um, there's this sense of possibility and excitement and wanting to make everything something something better something better for someone somewhere and you know when when the two of us were talking and saw the opportunity for honeycomb we decided to take the plunge jump in and it's been so much fun to watch and learn and do this startup journey where so much of it is not the technology anymore. A lot of it is the technology, but so much of it is about the talking about the technology and the teaching and the helping people see how their human practices enable technologies and vice versa. And I think that that has been the most fun and fulfilling part of all of this. Which is not at all what I expected coming into this as a <laughs> software engineer. <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, you, you have this expectation, I'll just build cool stuff. And that's that's where the kind of buck stops. And uh, and then I don't really have to do anything, but like in this whole this whole era of you know DevOps and Agile and really thinking about the engineering process and rethinking that, it's it's really changed. I think the, the expectations from a technology leadership standpoint of what things are really important for driving productivity and results. 
and start to fight against a lot of these kind of silos that have built up over time. Uh, but it's interesting to kind of like, hear you talk about the possibilities of technology, because that actually kind of drove me to change my entire career track to being a programmer. You know, I started off uh, actually as a commodities trader, and then I started seeing all this huh. cool stuff coming out of Silicon Valley. And I said to myself, wait, if people are just writing a whole bunch of code that can do all these amazing things, and they're building these incredible websites, well, what's to stop them from building things that could just do trading online? And if they do trading online and they do that in the commodity space, do I have a job? So I said, I, I could be the one that gets disrupted or I could be the one that's writing the future. And that's what got me excited. But I got a, I got a random question to ask you, Christine, because I, I watched uh, one of your talks. What is your favorite superhero movie? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I try not to pick favorites because uh, you know, a single movie rarely holds up. Um, I have to say the the talk that got me excited enough to write the the superhero talk that you're uh, referencing was Into the Spider Verse. Um, you know, there's so many superhero movies these days. There, there's a little bit of a formula, and you know, uh, Marvel does a great job. But you're like, I'm going to go watch this Marvel movie because I know it's going to be good. It's not going to be groundbreaking. Um, Into the Spider Verse made me kind of laugh with delight um, a number of times. A little bit of a longer answer than I imagine you were looking for, but if anyone, if anyone listening hasn't watched it yet, um, and they think they're tired of superhero movies, go check it out because it's, I would it's think, a visual and kind of just it's a treat. I, I would think that the uh, the community that listens to this podcast is a very large overlap with the <laughs> people who like superhero movies, to Great. be honest. Uh, a little bit of self-awareness there. Something, something that's really interesting to me, Christine, is, is what, what's, it like to, what's it like to found a company? What, what's it like for two women to found a tech company? And how's that journey been for you and for your co-founder? <laughs> um, the most succinct answer I can give to that question is that I can only imagine that two men don't get asked the same question. Kind of stepping away from the the two women part, yeah, um, sure. the journey of uh, Charity and myself starting the company has just been, oh, you know, a thing that I tell folks is that when you're the founders, the highs are much higher, but the lows are much lower. And certainly the two of us have grown in painful and uncomfortable ways that we never would have predicted. And we also would never, you know, go back to the way it was. It's been, it's been fun and uh, educational and rewarding and certainly makes us very, very grateful for the folks in our lives who deal with us when we come home <laughs> and are supposed to be taking a break from work and, you know, help us chill out or focus or even just talk through things. Yeah. I mean, you, 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 um, you passed over very quickly the, the, uh, the issue of, a um, of a female led, uh, tech company. Uh, do, do you, do you not think that it's, that it's an issue? Cause I mean, that's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting view. I mean, certainly in our context within technology in, in a large company, the, the issue of ensuring that we are developing female talent is significant. And um, also having role models, people who can show that you know, 
this is possible and this of course should always have been possible but you know some people have been breaking down the barriers is is it's it's quite a significant thing for some people to kind of see see role models like yourself out there and, and it may be uncomfortable to be thought of as a role model so i'm i'm just interested in kind of double clicking on that a little bit <laughs> i appreciate you saying that i'll say that our you know uh charity and i we don't choose to be women we just are and Someone, someone wise once said that people will identify you most with the things you can't control. Mm, <laughs> and so I think wise. when, yeah, right. When, when given forums like this, I tend to prefer to talk about our work and what we can control because to be an effective role model, you know, that's, that's what I think, that's what I would want to see. Um, that's what I wanted to see five, 10 years ago. Women just being badass, not spending a lot of time talking about what it's like to be a woman. Because really, the people that I'm hoping to inspire already know that piece. Uh, they want to know what it's like to start a company and what it's like to build software and sell software and create a movement. Right, yeah. The rest of it, you, you have to deal with and you, you just prepare and power through and deal with it in spite of uh, the other challenges. I will say, like what I think why I came to know Honeycomb is actually your co-founder. So Charity is very, uh, very active on Twitter, <laughs> and uh, I, I, I really liked her, um, like the persona, like like what she would, what she was saying about technology. Some of it very, uh, just very blunt. And I really thought that was amazingly refreshing, and it also kind of got me thinking. Okay, so. Charity and Christine as co-founders, like what actually two, you know, pretty different personalities coming together, not unheard of with many, many startups, including my startups that I've done in the past. But how is it like the combination of you and Charity coming together around an idea? Like, how did that actually happen? Like you're, you're both <laughs> at parse and you're thinking, wow, like. Did you just come up with observability as an idea or was it just something kind of evolved out of the work? Because I know you had like a long history as a developer and she's very much in the ops space. Yeah. So we became, when we were at Parse, we actually worked together quite rarely. Um, you know, she, again, she was on the infra, infra and ops side scaling um, the system. I was building our analytic, analytics product. What drew us together was, well, A, the fact that we could see and respect each other's work ethics. We could see how much we cared about the work that we were doing, um, you know, even across the room. But also, <laughs> when we when Parse was acquired by Facebook in 2013, there was a very small set of us who were skeptical. You know, mm. rightfully, it was a great opportunity and a lot of people were excited but she and I were both like, wait, wait, you know, but this is a big company and we wanted to be part of a startup and what's going to happen? And so she and I, uh, you know, another, another wise person uh, said that the thing that brings folks together more effectively than things that they like is things that they dislike. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she and I um, would kind of bond over that and, and kind of complain about that while we were at Facebook. The origin of Honeycomb was really from an internal tool that we experienced at Facebook. One of the things that happens during an acquisition is that uh, the big company tends to look at the small company and, and, and pat them on the head and go, oh, you're so cute with your little startup toys. Here are the big kid toys that you should be using. 
And um, in Facebook's case, most of them were garbage for our use case. Um, you know, it turns out a giant PHP-based web app needs don't translate as well to a multi-tenant mobile backend as a service. But one of them was actually incredibly instrumental in how we thought about debugging, how we thought about kind of digging into this giant tangle of uh, operational data that we needed to support our multi-tenant mobile backend as a service. And what was exciting to us and, and really you know, showed the potential and breadth of an audience for a tool like this was that despite her and I coming from very different perspectives, we both found incredible value in this. And, you know, so she from, and I'll explain what that means, um, she from her ops perspective um, would often get complaints from sales or, you know, escalated customer requests saying, hey, parse looks like it's down. You know, what's going on? And she would go and look at her wall of dashboards and say, no, parse is fine. Everything's green. They must be, you know, their Wi-Fi must be, must not be on. And prior to Facebook, the, the escalation path was to go into the code and add a, like, if app ID equals this one customer, spit out a new right. graph. And then you'd have to go through the whole deploy cycle. And then you'd have this, like, extra graph that you'd then watch and watch it populate. And that would could take hours to, to iterate and, you know, see the data and figure out what to do next. And with this internal tool called Scuba, her time doing this triage decreased to, you know, 30 seconds a minute tops um, of just being able to slice, dice, zoom in without having to decide ahead of time which graphs were worthy of including in this dashboard. From my perspective, on the product engineering side, we all did support. So we all rotated through days of support. And a thing that would come up frequently Remember, I was building the analytics analytics product, and the analytics product was based on very similar principles <laughs> to what her dashboards were, because that was the state of the art at the time, you know, lots of time series. I would spend a lot of my time answering support questions about why their graphs were saying a certain thing. And could I give them more information about why, why their Android devices were suddenly issuing more requests than usual? And this was also a painful thing for me to do prior to Facebook. I would, you know, go through logs and churn through some data and often just, you know, send them to our docs page and say, I don't really know, but, you know, maybe this will help. Maybe these docs will help. After getting to Facebook, I was able to also get into this tool and very quickly view traffic from this app's perspective, break down by any arbitrary, you know, I could just explore some hypotheses and break down by, oh, maybe I'll traffic by um, which API endpoint are they using? Which SDK version are they using? And, you know, very quickly give them a low level of granularity that they were unaccustomed to with pre-aggregated time series graphs. And when we realized that despite our very different perspectives, despite our very different personas, we found this tool transformative to how we worked and thought about software in production. We were like, oh man, wait a minute. I, I don't want to, I would never want to go back to a world where I didn't have this ability. And, um, you know, the, the Facebook, the Facebook side of the story is that Scuba is incredibly powerful and, you know, lots and lots of people across lots of different teams use that. But Remember at the time we were we were skeptical Facebook employees. We wouldn't believe it until it applied to us. <laughs> and um, 
but it was it was just it was so exciting and throughout the, this startup journey it, it's been you know you mentioned we have very different personalities we do we have very different personalities very different interests and i like to say that the the right answer is usually between the two of us somewhere <laughs> yeah typically yeah it's uh that, that's the i think the interplay that happens uh, often you know very tight-knit teams it's uh it's not like you or I. It's okay. What do we kind of come up together? And and somewhere in that in that uh, chaos, we'll actually figure out what the actual <laughs> right answer should be. Exactly. Right, Justin. That's kind of like how our podcast. Uh, yeah. Totally. Yes. Yeah. Feeling our way around in the dark. Um, mm. Yeah. Blindfolded. Um, riding on a horse backwards. You know, something something that I think we should maybe do is talk a little bit about observability and exactly what it is. Because, you know, when we give uh, things names, they become, um, <laughs> they become something different to maybe what they were. And so there's certainly been a lot of development in the observability world over the last year or so. And, and I'd be interested, uh, Christine, if you could just maybe describe for those on, on, on uh, those of the listeners who don't know exactly what it is to talk about it. And, and how, how did all of the factors that make up what we refer to as observability today as a practice, how do they all come together, do you think? <laughs> I define, well, we at Honeycomb define, define observability as the ability to ask new questions of your systems in production without having to deploy new code. When we first started, and this is you know very early 2016, uh, very I don't think anyone was talking about observability in this context. Um, that was purely a term for control theory and kind of physical engineering systems and a couple a couple teams at large tech companies. We initially latched onto the term because it was something that was distinct from monitoring. It was a way that we could differentiate ourselves from that traditional, okay, I'm going to guess which graphs might be important. I'm going to immortalize them in a dashboard. I'm going to put them up on the wall and then hope that they will tell me what will happen for my next outage. Because we saw that as, okay, that, that's a way of solving problems, but it feels like the old way. And it feels like yeah. not a very flexible way. It seems very like it, reactive, actually. It's like I'm just responding yeah. to things that come up. I don't. I can't really predict or experiment. Yeah, and, and you know, firsthand at Parse, when we were trying to react to uh, this unmitigated chaos of, to give you an idea, the sense at sense of scale at Parse um, in 2012, we were something like, uh, sorry, 2013, we were something like 60,000 unique mobile apps on our platform, each with their, you know thousands or millions of users by by 2015 we were a million so just unmitigated chaos with shared resources um trying to predict ahead of time what might happen just completely impossible and so we started talking about observability as not that (laughs) <laughs> Remember, this goes back to uh, the fact that the, this honeycomb journey has been a lot of learning how to talk about this technology. But we, you know, I, I think that there's, even as we've learned, as we've as we've evolved, there's been this theme in how we talk about observability that uh, has carries through. Which it's all about flexibility. It's all about not having to be reactive, uh, not having to be exclusively reactive, and if you. You know, having the flexibility to really explore rather than having to like react, create a new dashboard, wait, find an answer, 
repeat that loop. It's about shortening the feedback loops so that you can learn more quickly and, you know, kind of move more naturally almost in production. It's been again, highly educational uh, over the last several years, watching other uh, vendors and, and, you know, folks in the community pick up the term and try to try to define it for themselves or in some cases, you know, turn it to be something that conveniently describes the three products they're trying to sell you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it, it's, I, I <laughs> it is the, what will naturally happen with any, any term that is sort of coming into being. But I think the thing that we have held more true than, than others is that observability isn't just, it's not just a, a technology. It's not a tool. It's like you said, it's a practice of using a tool and using those insights to feed back into what the humans do. And I love all of the conversations these days about uh, the culture of, of the culture of observability or um, the practice, you know, the, 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 the best practices that it enables, because especially when we're talking about reactive and proactive and what the humans do, the human factors play such a big part. Actually, one of the one of the pieces that was really influential in our, our thinking of kind of early days of honeycomb is John Alspa wrote a piece. I think the title was something like um, you know the last letter I'll ever write to monitoring companies. Or if you're gonna if you're thinking about starting starting a monitoring company, you read this letter, and it was all about what are you going to let my humans do. And I love that perspective because you know as as amazing as technology is these days, there's we're still never going to replace humans, um, not anytime in the near future until my phone can stop suggesting the wrong autocorrect for everything I type. Um, we're just, we're ways away from machines helping us create software. And the more that the tools can empower humans and make the humans be better at what the humans are good at, uh, that's exciting to me. Yeah, I think about the, yeah. about the, the, the ways that we, we talk about this and I have a question of mine, but just before I get there, you know, could you maybe just like walk through you know, an example of of what you just talked about? So, you know, some issue comes up, some some incident, and how they may resolve it in the new world of observability. If that question makes sense. It's just like I was looking Definitely. kind of like you know, there like a like a definitive type of example that comes off the top of your head. Yeah. Uh, so I'll go back to that example of the um, charity and her dashboards. So in the old world, um, when there was, again, uh, <laughs> and this actually happened, uh, the salesperson on his like second day was like, oh my God, charity purses down. Um, di- you know, I have Disney on on, an, on the line, on an email. Um, and they're saying that purses down, purse can't be down. And charity would be like, I don't know what you're talking about my monitor, like my monitoring says that everything is fine, right? My high level graphs say that everything is fine. You know, what's going on? And the sales guy was like, well, you know, they're, they're trialing, they're super low volume, but they're doing a trial and it, we have to look, we have to do well in that trial. Um, and what was happening is that there, you know, we were handling some hundreds of thousands of requests per second. Uh, Disney's app was issuing maybe four requests per second. Um, and it was just getting drowned out. Whatever, errors they were seeing were just getting drowned out in the like mass of 
noise from everyone else. Oh well, yeah, so you're not going to see that in the log because like no. <laughs> the logs are going by so so fast, right? Right. Okay. Um, so in this in this old world, um, there was the like, okay, if App ID is Disney, spit out a spit separate graph. Again, try to predict what their what their problems might be, what 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 the symptoms might look like. Hope that we spit out the same graphs. Do that deploy cycle, and then watch it. And then if it didn't turn up the right thing, if it didn't, you know, surface any interesting clues, repeat that cycle, come up with new, new hypotheses, wait. When we started using Scuba, if you're using something like Honeycomb, um, that feedback cycle just gets a whole lot shorter because instead of being restricted to the questions that you asked when you set up those dashboards, you're instead able to slice by anything by something arbitrary you're able to say well i have my this graph on the wall from you know <laughs> legacy graph on the wall of error rates well let me zoom into just disney right high cardinality data is one of those things data certain fields that have lots of possible values in this case hundreds of thousands um, or millions of app ids and we, let's zoom in on that let's filter by that let's look at just these four requests per second. Let's break down by something else arbitrary that might matter, endpoint. Okay, great, now we can see errors for Disney by endpoint, uh, broken down by endpoint. I can pinpoint, ah, yes, you know, it's happening for this one endpoint, uh, but that's where most of their traffic is going. And be able to do that, again, without having to deploy new code, fast enough that I can come up with a new hypothesis and kind of iterate without having to wait for a deploy cycle or um, you know, wait for data to populate and fold that into my intuitive understanding of how code and production works. And this, this prototypical example is very you know, classic ops monitoring because I'm intentionally trying to draw that parallel. Um, one of the things that I think is really exciting from my perspective, and this is the topic of that DevOps Day talk, is how that sort of feedback loop and that, oh, I can just go check it in production mindset mm, really right. can benefit the folks who are thought of as being earlier, earlier in that process. Um, I, as a developer, I wasn't that comfortable with production when we started Honeycomb. Realizing that by starting to look at how my code was actually behaving in production, looking at the signals that would matter, looking at thinking ahead of time about what I'd need to instrument um, allows developers to build up this sense of you know how their code might behave and, and to check their assumptions in ways that you know you used to associate with things like test-driven development and and yep. that's that's something that folks were never saying about monitoring that's what things that's what folks were never saying about those pre-canned graphs and these are the sorts of human effects that are so exciting for this technology folded into human practices to enable. I think you said something like production is no longer the place our development code runs, but it's where our development <laughs> process lives. And I thought that that yeah. so succinctly describes this idea of, of, of shift left and having developers actually understand the implications of the things that they're coding and putting in production. It's always been really interesting to me, the 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 various groups that form around the terms that we use. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've been to a large agile conference, for instance, and you've been to obviously, you know, DevOps conferences. And even though uh, in many cases, a lot of the behaviors 
that are spoken about in both of those conferences and observability now would be another one and, <laughs> you know release engineering and that kind of thing um it's, it's funny that the the behaviors are actually the same but they don't share the same language and we, we seem to create these pockets and it's it's interesting to me because the maybe and i think this is this is john Allspur's point the the human factors view is perhaps what brings it all together and it's it's certainly what I think the DevOps community have tried to do. What, why do you think that hasn't worked? What, why do you think we still are, you know, these cliques, if I can use a provocative oh word? Because words are hard and humans are complicated. <laughs> um, you've you've hit on honestly like one of my pet peeves isn't the right word, but um, <laughs> from the very beginning when we would talk about honeycomb, you know, maybe one in one in like ten people I would talk to about this would kind of look at me and be like, but isn't this, what you're doing sounds a lot like what my business intelligence tools do. Like, can't I do this with Postgres already? Or can't I do this with my data lake? And I would pause and be like, yes, exactly. But imagine (laughs) you didn't have to wait 24 hours for that data to get loaded in. And imagine you could do that on your system data and not your, like the, the business intelligence data. And imagine that your Ops people could have that amount of flexibility, and they look at me and be like, "Well, but tools have trade-offs. You know, that's why you use these tools for this thing and that, that tool for that thing." And I'd look at them and I'd get to do this thing where I'd be like, "But it's 2016. Obviously, not 2016 anymore. <laughs> it's 2016. Shouldn't our technologies start to allow us to bring these things together? Shouldn't they allow begin to allow us to do different things?" Um, but you know, talking to these people, there's no, there are no ideas under, there are no new ideas under the sun. It's all about what if we could take this this practice, this mindset, this these habits from this world, bring them into that world, um, and show exactly that Agile and DevOps aren't so far apart, that BI and observability have a lot to learn from each other. Um, boy, I wish yeah. there were more ways to facilitate um, cross-click mindshare. Um, <laughs> We haven't quite found it yet, but I I see these pockets like QA. Um, the QA and testing world often gets very excited about observability in fun fun ways. Um, the front end performance world gets excited about observability in fun ways. There's there's so many bridges that can be built across to these other communities. And um, again, as as a developer, sort of out of my out of my official waters. Um, it's fun for me to to see and think about how how similar um, these ideas that that feel fresh and new and observability are similar to things these other communities have been talking about for years. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it really it's also by the way one of my uh, pet peeves. I, I think and I, to be frank, I would I would include corporate technology, particularly financial services. Uh, you know, financial services Absolutely. technologists. Would, would like to think that we are a special kind of special snowflake and that nothing can possibly be as hard as the problems we have to solve. So, you know, we, we all have a lot of work to do. And I, I think building, building bridges is, is I, I hope, um, part of what, part of what this, this, uh, podcast aims to do. Um, it wasn't in our founding documents. Mark, make sure you add that to, this is why we started the <laughs> podcast. Uh, we wanted to make the world better. Um, but could could I just um, just drill down a little bit on your monitoring example? So if if we take 
a fairly typical corporate example. What you have is you have some backend systems that are some some small integer n plus 10 years old at least, um, usually 20. And then we have some middleware, uh, which part of which may be uh, APIs, multiple layers of APIs that have accreted over the years, together with the more the the older fashioned sort of message-based middleware. And then on top of that, we then have um, you know obviously all of the the channel applications. And so from a customer perspective. When there is a failure in terms of service level, i.e. the environment isn't sufficiently responsive or it is just down or whatever the case may be, there are so many pieces that need to be knitted together. How, how does uh, how does the what kind of practice do we have to put in place in a large organization to solve that problem? Clearly, it's not just a question of data, right? There's more. What what more is there? I'm going to give an answer, and I suspect for some people it will still be unsatisfying, but we'll go for it. Um, I think that when it comes to being able to tease apart um, and and understand these complex legacy systems with many layers and many dependencies, um, <laughs> the the key thing I like to remind folks is to not to not try to do it all at once. Right. As, as software people, we excel at creating abstractions and building on top of those abstractions. And in large part, this is how we got here in the first place. Um, with when when thinking about adopting observability or, or embarking on this journey of understanding this giant software ball we've created, um, it's almost you you. you do the reverse process of building the abstractions. You want to start at the high level. You want to start at, okay, well, what is the top level thing that should be working? That What are, what are the high level signals that uh, do matter, right? If you're an e-commerce store, maybe that the high level, the high level signal is people should be able to buy shoes. Um, there should be a, a shoe buying signal that we, that we um, track on. And at each layer, going from that very high level signal to, okay, well, what are those next layer of dependencies? Are there a couple places that we can attach signals or metrics or beacons, whatever you want to call them, traces, to start to understand how each of these additional components factors into that thing that we agreed matters the most. There is a real feeling that people get when they think about observability um, on existing systems, especially, where they're like, oh, well, it's too much to change, or, mm-hmm. or there's, there's, it's too much work, or there are too many moving pieces, and thus we can't get started, or, or you know, we have to stick with the status quo. And I think that that is a very natural impulse, right? You, you, you want to do things right, you want to do things thoroughly, but the whole nature of observability from my perspective, at least, is that exploratory iterative aspect to working with the data. I think that applies just as much to capturing the data. Um, yeah, I, it's, yeah. it's um, sorry to interrupt. I think that I just wanted to tease out that, that, that idea of um, data exploration, because, you know, one of the, one of the practices that, that I personally uh, am a big fan of is, 
uh, putting signals uh, which are uh, which are loggable uh, in released code as we iterate the code and get customer feedback. So you know instead of having this complicated uh, system which we may have to put in place to track you know a variety of clicks and uh, the, the the travel of a customer through a particular site, it's very easy as you are evolving from MVP onwards to put these basic signals into the code, which is then saved to logs, which you can then uh, use to test your hypothesis, right? Which is, oh, you know, we think that customers will tend to opt out at this part of a long form, for instance, you know? So, you know, that sort of thing can be built in. But what's interesting to me is, um, you know, in in my previous lives, um, I've found that the appetite for business people and also technology leaders to really have decisions driven by exploratory data in a short time period, right? So two or three weeks worth of data based on one release of a piece of software is very, very limited. There seems to be this, uh, this underlying theme that lots of data over long periods of time trend lines with correlation coefficients close to one is really what we need in order to make a decision, right? And well, first of all, I mean, do you see that as well? And of course, this is a pure development question. And then secondly, how how are you seeing the appetite for people to just adjust to it's, it's okay to be having hypotheses using data in a creative way to test them and to explore how we solve the problem in the real? I'm going to answer your second question first. When I think about hypotheses and use cases and um, when they are appropriate, it's almost like there are what people think of as different use cases, incident response, comma, performance optimization, comma, business analysis. You're doing the same thing, just on different timescales. And so certainly uh, business folks who do think about things in terms of quarters or months, um, they're going to want to see longer trend lines. The extreme other end of that scale, when your SREs are responding to a page because the your service is down, um, they don't really care, right? Oh, great. Two minute, two minute trend line. It's because it's been down for two minutes. Great. Maybe I can, there, maybe there's a hypothesis I can explore in the next 15 seconds that will minimize this. It all depends on what you are turning, what your expectations are for that tool and what you're trying to use it for. We actually... One of the things that Scuba, again, the internal Facebook tool would rely on is that it would always optimize for fast responses over perfectly accurate data. It would prune slow nodes if it you know, mm-hmm. would, would result in a slower response. And so the internal expectation when using Scuba was, okay, you're using this for, you know, be, to be pointed in the right direction. You should not be using it for business intelligence or things where... 3% error may matter a lot. Obviously, that sort of guarantee implies an understanding of, of the software that many people do not have or need to have for commercial software and vendors these days. But I think that the this question of how much data is enough data to drive actions is purely dependent on the humans reaching for that data. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Yeah, it's. I, I have to say, it's a fascinating. Um, it really is a fascinating topic. Sorry, Mark. I, I think you wanted to say something. Oh no, I was just going to say. What? Well, I think. Um, well, one, you know, definitely on the data point. I mean, I think we all have to 
you know, figure out just you know, what is our what is our baseline in terms of what we kind of feel as an organization or as a business unit we feel comfortable in terms of our our data horizon and what we want to measure. But I also just wanted to come back and just mention the thing that you you talked about in terms of how to how to kind of tackle this the the huge monster of the enterprise. And it really comes down to figuring figuring out okay what are the what are the most important business questions that we have and allowing that to kind of drive how you start to connect some of these things because if you try to boil the ocean I mean nothing ever gets done but if you just get an answer to one really important question that can build the momentum to start to bring on other systems and incorporate other data so I really kind of like how you kind of frame that Christine in terms of how to make it how to really make it work and build from there. Totally. When I, when I talk to customers, I like to um, visualize a T. It's like you want, um, if there's if there's an easy way to get breadth, right? Some common handler or API gateway, something, some way to get a high-level picture of things, awesome, do it. Get that breadth so that you can start to get a sense of the pulse of the system, but then identify that business problem and go deep. So that you can show a tool's actual, you know, whatever tool you're using, that tool's ability to really solve a business problem and use that to show actual value, not just hypothetical value. And absolutely, trying to boil the ocean is just a recipe for being disappointed, whether the implementer or the stakeholders. And um, it's, it's all about what can you really, what can the humans really do with the tools? Yes, indeed. Well, speaking as a human, um, Mark and I can probably do very little with tools, but uh, hopefully there are some people out there in the uh, podcast verse um, who can do more than us. Christine, uh, just want to say thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, it really has. And may I say just, just how articulate you are in, in explaining what I still think is, is a fairly new uh, world, and um, I think I think we all in in the space need to do more to um, I think drive some of these basic behaviors or habits as you call them uh, related to observability these basic practices. What can humans do? And so, you know, one of the things that we try and do on the podcast is summarize at the end, uh, you know, two or three things that that listeners can take away and and start thinking about or apply maybe. Uh, the next, um, you know, the next time they are at work, um, in the current environment, virtually at work, so probably at their kitchen table. And for me, just listening to you, I think uh, the first thing I'd like to say is be badass. So it doesn't matter who you are, um, right? Just be badass. And uh, that seems like great advice to me. Uh, secondly, really, the, the question, once this code is written, what is left for the humans to do and what do the humans need that the code isn't going to provide? And when I say code, I guess I also mean data, I think is, is, is an interesting question. So um, in particular, what experiments um, do we need to be able to perform? Um, and I think that's, I think that's a really interesting question for software engineering as well. And then thirdly, I loved your point about building bridges between these different cliques. Uh, you know, obviously we have them in organizations, uh, we have them within the industry. So I think, um, you know, it would be, I think, useful to 
to try and see these different environments that and these different uh, groups, uh, terms, DevOps, agile, observability, human factors, all of these different areas as essentially being part of one broader initiative to try and um, make things better, uh, make things better for um, engineers so that they can make things better for the people who use our system. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, Christine, this was really awesome. Thank you so much. And uh, and to your point, Justin, I, I think I need some more badass in my life. I'm, I'm going to work on that. That's that's really my, my main takeaway. <laughs> Thank you. You've got Thank plenty you, of badass, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, really awesome. Uh, thank you, everyone uh, that's listening to this episode of the Heretics Podcast. Stay and stay, yeah, stay safe. Socially distance yourself, which, again, I don't think for this community is necessarily as big an issue as it might be for some others. Hmm. We're okay behind our screens, right? Yeah, we just need screen. That, that's that, that's where we, we get our screen. sunshine from, yeah. from the screen. And so isn't it ironic <laughs> that we're talking to someone about human factors? I'll just let that sit there and we can think about that. <laughs> All right, thank you, everyone. I think we're using our mouth words and not our type words. <laughs> there yes. you go. That's quite human of us. You're speaking. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Heretex podcast today. We hope you listen to another one really soon. Please accept our apologies for any technical issues and sound quality. We promise we're getting better. And we hope you are too. See you soon.